Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Greg Lukianoff. Greg is a journalist, an attorney, the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, and the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. During our conversation, Greg talks about freedom of speech in America, how social media has affected our propensity to speak openly, and the threats to free expression on modern university campuses. As Greg mentions, while the legal support for free speech is strong in the U.S., it isn't in our culture. A citizen's right to free speech is the counterintuitive exception to the rule in human history. Free speech societies tend to be societies that are peaceful and prosperous. Cancel culture societies seem to be societies that lead to self-censorship, a zeitgeist of fear and suspicion, and an inability to rigorously pursue the truth. The work of people like Greg and organizations like FIRE are crucial to the continuance of our sacred inheritance, a free civilization and a free people. And their noble mission reminds me of two quotes to be considered, one from James Hollis, the other from Vaclav Havel. Wherever there is hysterical certainty, and there is much in our land, it is because doubt has already planted its black flag inside the soul, and the ego is running away like a child. In everyone there is some willingness to merge with the anonymous crowd, and to flow comfortably along with it, down the river of pseudo-life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Greg. Lukianoff. Greg, I have been looking forward to talking to you for um, well over half of a year. Uh, I know you, like so many guests on the show, are extremely busy and that you're you know, trying to grow your organization literally in real time. Thank you so much for giving me the time and coming on the show. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I'd love to start, as I do with guests, just kind of at the beginning of um, what got you interested in what you've dedicated your life to really, which is free speech advocacy and the first amendment, you know, you've been in this game for decades. I know, how do you make sense of what got you interested in freedom of speech in the first place back before you, you know, were leading fire and were, were, were really committed to this kind of work. Where does the interest come from for you? Oh man. Um, well, uh, this month is actually the 10th anniversary of my book, Unlearning Liberty, which was one of the first book um, that I wrote, warning that we were teaching young people the habits of uh, unfree societies um, in higher ed, um, uh, and that we were teaching them to think more like censors than like, you know, free people. Um, and it got so much worse after that. And in that one, I talk a little bit about my, um, you know, my background, my, uh, <laughs> you know, we can go way back. And my mother's ethically Irish, grew up in Britain and thinks of herself as British. Um, she came over um, as a nanny during the Mary Poppins uh, um, nanny craze of the 1960s. Um, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, my father is ethnically Russian, grew up in Yugoslavia and thinks of himself as Russian, which makes sense because he, he was born in Croatia and you don't just decide you're Croatian. They're going they're going to want to know who your great great grandparents were and uh, my grandfather not my great grandfather uh fought the bolsheviks um and of course in new york there was a it's like oh so you're aristocracy it's like no we're we're kulaks we're serfs who made good like we were you know decent working folk um who were murdered by the millions by people uh, by, by by stalin 
Um, and uh, so definitely that sort of like history um, and fighting authoritarianism w- was uh, um, something that a lot of first generation immigrant Americans have. Um, and it really makes you appreciate what's so different about the U.S. Um, I, I grew up in a uh, neighborhood that was very um, f- uh, there were an awful lot of other kids who were either immigrants themselves or first generation. And But the nice thing was everybody was from someplace different. So there was, you know, Peruvian kids, uh, Korean kids, Vietnamese kids, uh, Haitian kids. Like, like it was um, uh, it, it was interesting because there wasn't, you know, everybody had different ideas of what you should and shouldn't be allowed to say. And in that background, it really um, became that you really understood free speech because if everyone's mom got a veto on what you were allowed to say, given the cultures were so different, Different and politeness and appropriateness norms are so famously different from culture to culture. None of us would be allowed to say anything. So you had to be really patient. You had to figure out where people were coming from. Occasionally, someone would get punched, but ultimately, like we really did try to figure out where each other come from. So I, I have the first generation sort of belief in free in in, in what makes up the free speech is part of what makes America special. I've got the fear of authoritarianism. Um, you know, I've got actual experience of it. Um, you know, growing up. But then I got to college and um, one, you know, I had a sort of like economic class chip on my shoulder. I went to a school where I was a scholar. I went to American University. And and if you already have like a little bit of like a like working class kind of chip on your shoulder, it's like the worst school to go to because it's um you know a fairly affluent school and you know i'm the one who did that had to had to, had to work while i was there but i was also a student journalist and oh and by the way the, the class issues about since my that was emphasized by my mom like the, the uh difference in sort of like ideas of upper class you shouldn't be allowed to say that with sort of like british kind of working class kind of like you get over yourself <laughs> about yeah. what we're allowed to say what was definitely in me already but then i was a student journalist and man like you get to see in real time, um, why free speech, why the First Amendment has to be so broad, because practically every day someone comes into your office and says, you know, Editor Lukianoff, you have to, or, or Lukianoff, you know, as they mispronounce it, um, that you have to fire this reporter or you have to you have to um, apologize for this column or whatever. And it would take a second and you'd, you'd go, why? And it would take a second and you'd see that they, they knew that this, that you have to punish that person or remove that article. They hadn't figured out why yet. And that their brains would get busy trying to figure out what's the most, um, what, what's the best excuse I have to get rid of this person and realizing, seeing in real time that people have this instinct to censor, um, that is, uh, very determined. Uh, I, it's really what made me realize that first amendment has has to be and free speech has to be very broadly construed. Last thing, um, uh, the, the Communications Decency Act that tried to ban indecency on the internet came out in my um, my senior year of college. I was really worked up about it, um, and so I, I went to law school um, in '97, and I specialized in First Amendment law. I took every class at Stanford offered on freedom of speech. When I ran out, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, and even interned at the ACLU. And my friends thought I was crazy. You know, like, like you're putting all your eggs in this basket where it's very hard to find a job. And they were right. Um, but Fire uh, Fire co-founder Harvey Silverglate found me by a recommendation from Kathleen Sullivan, who was then the, the president of uh, president, then the dean of of, of, of the law school. Um, and uh, you know, it worked out. I, I, I was lucky in the sense that that a, a new organization was hiring, you know, at a high level for for a First Amendment person. But uh, you know, and I've been doing it ever since. 
you know, you it, it does seem like your family background and the experience of you know your family being in a kulak and all of the which I don't I don't think is generally well known history in the United States of what happened to those people yeah. during the Soviet Union. But you know, this was a question I knew I wanted to ask you, which is a very basic one. But when someone asks you why free speech matters to begin with, and you just alluded to some degree about oh, sure. this in in your own family history and your own upbringing. How do you respond to that? What, why do you think it is something that you know still deserves the continued esteem that um, I think people like you are trying to give it in our culture? Um, I think you know we need to protect freedom of speech because it's what I call the eternally radical idea. And and what I mean by that um, is that in all of human history, in every generation. Certain people stand up to demand that other people be censored. <laughs> yeah. um, and free speech being on the winning side is much less common. Um, and it took a long time before it was even really practical to argue uh, for freedom of speech because, you know, I am, I do believe that there, and, and um, even though I have my issues with David Graeber and his book, um, uh, The Beginning of Everything, um, he talks about, you know, that there having been this period, you know, before, um, like pre-civilizational, um, you know, when farming had been adopted, but, but societies were more varied in how they were set up. I suspect there were probably more, you know, bands and groups that had something that looked a little bit more like deliberation, you know, um, uh, in their processes, but we don't really know. So my guess is that what was going on in Greece was actually um, with Greek democracy and, and that kind of stuff that that there may have been analogs that go much further back. But again, that's a guess. But in, you know, in in um, in ancient Greece, the, you had these small scale societies that had uh, democratic uh, that had democratic norms and actually were true democracies like in Athens in the sense that everyone, you know, they, they did things by majority rule. Of course, they didn't include the slaves or women, but um, uh, but at the same time, it was, you know, they, they, so they had ideas of freedom of speech. Uh, the Roman Republic had interesting ideas of freedom of speech that were very elitist. Um, but outside of those pretty unusual forms of government, um, it shouldn't be a surprise that there wasn't that much discussion of freedom of speech until the printing press was invented, because there's no real practical way to reach that many people in a way that would actually make that much of a difference to begin with until you actually have this original disruptive technology, the printing press. But almost as soon as the printing press um, is uh, in, in wide uh, distribution, as soon as it was about 1450 that you start start having the printing presses uh, made in Germany, but by like like 1520, you know, you know they, they were all over Europe. And that's when um, you, you really start having people for the first time saying, you know what, I think that speech should be free. I think that I think we should be arguing things out. And, and then, of course, you have things like, you know, Martin Luther made this the uh, the uh, this same argument. So I, I think that <laughs> this is a long winded way of saying that um, freedom of speech is one of the best inventions in human history for art, for science for progress um and here's one that's underappreciated for peace and and that may that, that may seem counterintuitive because of course the printing press when it was originally invented very quickly learned leaned to uh, uh, led to you know religious wars civil strife an increase in in the um uh, an increase in the um witch trials you know um which is l l less known um but freedom of speech is about 
um, changing minds and about deciding things through discussion rather than the more typical way um, disputes were solved in most of human history, which is violence or the threat of violence or ostracism. Um, discussing things, you know, is one of the one of the greatest inventions in human history. Yeah. I about a year ago, I had a chance to interview Jonathan Zimmerman, who wrote a book also about free speech. He's a professor at Penn. And a point that he continuously brought up during that conversation and in the book that he had recently written was that, you know, free speech in the country, in our country, was often the only tool that powerless people had to enact any form of change or have any hope of enacting any form of change. You know, I know just in doing research about your life and your career that I believe it's it's your point, and I think this is a historic fact that you just alluded to, that for the for most of human history, freedom of speech did not exist in civilization. It's it's the exception and not the rule. I'd love if you can yep. to to speak about what we know about what happens in civilizations that don't have freedom of speech. What what tends to be the 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 power that renders you know justice or injustice how those civilizations tend to work what do we know about what happens to civilizations which are probably more typical than not in history that don't have free speech as as sort of a a bedrock of the society well to to back up a little bit um the uh, John, big fan of Jonathan Zimmerman i think he's done done great work i think he's a very good uh, good communicator on, on on all of this um, now, when I speak at high schools, I always have to make the, the, this point that I didn't really think I had to make, um, which is, but younger people aren't being taught about freedom of speech. And you, you have to explain that um, there's this um, propaganda, frankly, uh, that, that that kids are running into in K through 12, that essentially um, free speech is the argument of the three Bs, um, the bully, the bigot, and the robber baron. Hmm. Um, and I try to break this apart um, and just say, OK, you know who didn't need freedom of speech? Rich and powerful people. Um, you know how, why rich and powerful people were OK? Because they're rich and powerful. Um, yeah. and, and I point out, it's like, and by the way, representative government in parts of Europe largely started as kings and czars needing money from the merchant class and being like, OK, OK, you can have some say in rule if, if you give us some money. So like the, 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 the rich and powerful mostly do just fine. Of course, in communism, um, not so much. Um, but once you get to democracy, once you get to some kind of representative government, which is also, again, exceedingly rare up until the relatively recent past um, in, in human history, uh, the the majority, uh, in addition to the rich and powerful, uh, are, make the rules, and they like an athlete, they, they get to decide. Um, the only group that needs freedom of speech and need and freedom of speech to be understood as a separate value, other than you know the general will or or popularity or or, or majority vote, uh, are the less powerful, the less popular, and the non-majority. And the reason why this isn't being explained to young people is partially because in institutions like um, K through 12 and higher education, they, they're a little uncomfortable with pointing out that they're pretty politically homogenous um, uh, and that uh, 
because that, then they actually are like, well, maybe we're the ones representing the powerful point of view, but that can't possibly be. This is, makes a little bit more sense in K through twelve, where you know teachers aren't that that well paid, and I and you can you can understand like not having a sense of this being a powerful point of view. But higher ed likes to kid itself, like it is not one of the richest, most powerful in, um, institutions in the world. Um, and but once you actually are in power and once and once you know that people you who agree with you are going to be in power, it's typical, if, if, if disappointing, that in many cases you start turning on freedom of speech because you're kind of like, well, you know, when I wasn't that powerful, um, I really believed in freedom of speech. But now that I actually I can make the rules. Well, guess what? I'm going to do what everybody does. Um, uh, well, actually, not, not everybody does it even starts with being very pro free speech, but sometimes they pretend to. But then when they get in power, they're like, well, I, I'm making the rules now. You know, I'm, I'm going to settle all these scores. And the idea is not to lead to that sort of seesaw of kind of like, I'm in charge. Now I censor you. You're, uh, I'm in charge. Now I censor you is to stop that process entirely and be like my um, it's, it's the thing that made James Madison um, come around to a bill of rights was just this idea that um, originally he was like, uh, if we're creating this great representative government, why would we want a bill of rights? Because we'd only be limiting our own power. We'd only be limiting what the people want. But then really came around to the idea. It's like, oh, actually, no, there, there are some anti like undemocratic ideas that essentially political minorities should be protected, even if it is the will of the people. It's a very it's, it's a very smart idea. Um, and it but it goes so much against uh, human nature, the, the desire to, to, to censor that we are very lucky to live in a country where we have a free, a strong free speech protection like the First Amendment. But even luckier that we have a strong cultural tradition of freedom of speech, because without a cultural tradition of freedom of speech and it being a cultural value, the law is not going to mean anything. Um, uh, at least over time, it will start to it will start to fade away. And that's why I think, you know, people our age where I actually I don't know how old you are, but, um, you know, I, I most of my growing up was in the 80s when free speech law was improving and free speech culture was improving. I feel like over the last 20 years, those two trends have diverged and free speech culture is in trouble. Free speech law in the U.S. is still very good, yeah. But it, we shouldn't take for granted that it will stay that way because without a free speech culture to back it up, free speech law won't uh, be around very long. And also, without free speech culture, things that are not bound by the First Amendment um, become very illiberal. They become places where you know, echo chambers or force, uh, uh, you know, companies that are very uh, that force political conformity, and that's not that's not healthy either. So. I, I'm a big proponent of both free speech law and free speech culture. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I definitely want to get into what seems to have changed in the last 20 years or so. And I, I know even mostly the last 10 years, it seems on 10 years on campus, the major changes seems to to have shifted in, in how so many young people are viewing, you know, speech that they find disturbing as a form of violence, not yeah. something that is making them think. Uh, or making them emotionally uh, uncomfortable. Um, but I, I'd love to, before we go there, you, you mentioned that one of the maybe counterintuitive uh, benefits of having a society that, you know, is a free speech based society is, is the added benefit of peace or potential yeah. peace. S speak to that a little bit. What do we know about how free speech can help make a more peaceful world or a more peaceful society? Sure. I mean, there's a um, a lot of great um, studies on the idea of 
uh, different kinds of culture, the way the way you come to decisions and the way, um, you know, moral decisions and uh, get, get enforced. And the, the sort of like classic um, uh, system, you know, are what are called cultures, cultures of honor um, that essentially you shouldn't rely on, you know, authorities to take care of your problems for for you. So therefore, it's it's actually makes a lot of sense for you to be the enforcer of um it, often with violence of your of your uh, of threats to your power, threats to your dignity, threats to um uh, threats to your toughness. You know, <laughs> like yeah. so, so you end up seeing like in the idea of dueling and that and that kind of stuff is kind of the classic culture of honor. But that's actually a very typical way to to, to order society. That essentially, you know, the law takes care of only a handful of things, and it's up to you to enforce it yourself. And often, unfortunately, oftentimes with violence. Um. As you start uh, at having c- countries, you, you know, like um, the United States, you know, do this massive, unparalleled uh, um, experimentation with democracy. Because yes, there there was some limited democracy in uh, the United Kingdom and and in the Netherlands, but nobody had tried it on a scale this big. And all the founding fathers were really, except James Madison, were really pessimistic about being able to do it on this gigantic scale, you know, um, of of the United States. And it's interesting to watch those early years because, of course, as we know, one of the uh, you know the, the framers, one of the most important framers of the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton, died in a duel in, in eighteen oh four. So so you start you start actually having the um, the old ways the old culture of dignity things they start kind of dying off in the 19th century oh uh, fun fact by the way um i was reading through different histories and, f- and found out that uh they were talking about how uh about the the history of dueling in europe and they were talking about how traditionally clergy didn't duel um and then and then there's like a and then and then there's a footnote except in ireland um actually <laughs> that apparently the idea of going to church and having your you know your, your priest you know um challenge you to a duel is just like i'm half irish so i can i can make this right. um anyway so um what it got replaced by was this idea of a culture of dignity that, that essentially and that's the sticks and stones um culture and what i mean by that because sticks and stones has been the most embarrassingly badly misrepresented term um in my experience because you really have pe- you see people saying it's like well we used to say sticks and stones may never hurt me but now we know words can hurt <laughs> it's like okay you don't have to make up a special maxim that you teach children um if words don't hurt, it wouldn't even make sense if you said sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never kill me, like uh, will, will never hurt me. That's something you tell kids to live in a, in a culture of dignity that essentially like you, you can have your opinion. You can be a jerk. I'm not going to let it get to me. I'm not going to challenge you to a duel. Yeah. And and the culture of dignity ideas, the idea that you're in charge of yourself, um, that authority, you know, um, is in charge of, um, uh, you know, as, as it's cynically put, but probably accurately has a monopoly on the use of, of violence uh, as a form of coercion, but you have the vote and you have persuasion. Um, And it turns out uh, that since it's a replacement, you know, for settling things with your fists or your guns or with your tribe, of course, it's heated um, because it's about how the government's going to work. It's about who lives and dies. It's about what wars we fight. It's about who, what taxes people pay. It's about winners and losers. It's about so many different things. Of course, it's going to be intense. Uh, it's about really serious stuff. Um, but unfortunately, um, what we've seen develop on campus, and I, I don't 
love, and it's Bra- uh, uh, Bradley Manning and Campbell. Um, they wrote a book called uh, "A Victimhood Culture." Not a term I love, but what they're saying is that it's. I, I prefer to d- describe a, a, an alternative way that they talk about it in the book, which is, um, uh, w- which is that they that every conflict is intermediated. Um, that that essentially you go to someone in power to say, listen, this person is uh, has insulted me and I want you to do something about it. That's kind of a new invention to a degree. Um, uh, and I mean, you know, of course, dictatorships had aspects like that. that essentially, you know, you, you, you argue up. Um, but it's not very healthy for a democratic society to have all in- – uh, all conflict intermediated. Actually, I think it's kind of poisonous because it, that's not like thinking like a free and equal people. That's like thinking people in a in a in a top down authoritarian country. And it makes sense that it, that it could develop in a country that's increasingly comfortable and affluent because yeah, telling your kids to go to an adult when someone's being mean to you sounds nice. And why not keep that going in K through twelve? You know, to deal with the very real problem of bullying. Let's keep that up. Um, and then in higher ed, let's have bias reported teams and, and administrators there to intermediate conflict. And hey, you know, why don't we think of uh, human resources, uh, corporations in the same way as the intermediate? But but as you lose the muscle for handling, you know, interpersonal squabbles yourself, um, you, you get a very ant- like undemocratic way of thinking. It also, frankly, allows for a lot of gaming the system. I, I, I think that as soon as um, there was a big anti-bullying push uh, in the last decade. You know, socially intelligent um, uh, bullies were like, "Oh, okay. Well, now I know how to. I, I just have to change my language on how I bully people. I just have to, you know, claim that they're intolerant and report them." Um, and I believe that's happened, uh, you know, to a degree. Yeah, I want to talk about timing of this because you know, in preparing for this conversation, I was you know, reading over the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, watching interviews with you and with Jonathan Haidt, the co-author of the book. And you can correct me if any of this is wrong, but my understanding about you know your observation that something seemed to be changing was about 10 years ago in 2012, 2013-ish on campus. And yeah. that the primary observation you were making, there had always been protests of you know, speakers on campus that were saying, you know, beliefs that they have that students on campus didn't agree with. But the big shift was in the students viewing ideas that they disagreed with as a form of actual violence against them. Hence, these terms like microaggressions. Um, And the the students seem to be asking the administrators and the, the professors on campus for protection mm-hmm. um, from people and the ideas that these people espoused and believed because they were, you know, thre- truly threatening to them. And part of why I think this is so fascinating is, is because that is a seemingly a symptom of something much deeper that is going on in American culture and in child rearing. Um, I just wanted to put that to you and to get, you know, your, as best you can assessment of how these, you know, 18 year olds are showing up on campus, going to universities, which, you know, the, historically, those are the places you go to be challenged, to admit your ignorance, to learn. And 
it, it seems like there's a confluence of a variety of factors going on here. One is um, undeniably the role of the internet and social media and tech addiction, most likely the some of the um, limitations that may have resulted in stunting growth in some ways of these these young people who are showing up on campus uh protection of the of the parents of these kids you know as as americans are having fewer and fewer children i think one could make a reasonable argument that these children are being more and more protected because when you have 10 kids you don't really have the bandwidth to look after each one of them in every single way but when you have one or two it's it's much more possible i just want to put that to you and and let you respond as to what you make as the deeper causes of some of these um, experiences and uh, these symptoms that we seem to be finding on campus starting about 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, I mean, great question. Also, very complicated one. Um, so Coddling the American Mind, uh, which came out in 2018, which is um, feels at once um, so long ago, but also like, you know, there's, we've been through like 15 different lifetimes since 2018. It's been totally. really busy four years. Yeah. Um, the uh, what we the whole book is trying to figure out what was so different about those those students who were hitting campus around then. And one thing that I'm always really adamant about pointing out is that um, is the class uh, the economic class element of it mm-hmm. is that the challenges currently faced by you know um, kids in the like the bottom half of the American income distribution actually honestly probably even like the bottom three quarters are very different than the kind of kids who are showing up uh, particularly in the elite colleges that got hit with this very strange and very sudden um, sort of a, a illiberal current. So it was very important to me that, that we we state that very clearly, that if you want to uh, figure out what's, what's hitting working class kids and, and poorer kids, um, uh, uh, Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids, is a better thing to study. But if you're trying to figure out what is going, what hit elite campuses in, um, in 20, 2013, 2014, um, you do have to look more at, at uh, parents, um, not just in the upper you know quarter uh, or the upper 10 percent, but how many of these kids um, actually come from like the 1% or 0.1% on, on some of these campuses is really kind of shocking or maybe not shocking, but it was, it was to me. Um, and the things that we think really changed uh, and it wasn't subtle. I always make this point that prior to 20 to the end of 2013, really 2014, students have been awesome on freedom of speech. Like they were the most reliable constituency for it. They got, you know, they understood, um, you know, uh, that they had to stand up for dirty lyrics or um, edgy comedians or their professors who challenged them. They were really good on it. And it changed very dramatically in, uh, tw- in uh, at the end of 2013, 2014. Suddenly you had them demanding, you know, um, microaggression, um, uh, policies, uh, trigger warnings, uh, which by the way, like we said back then, we, we don't like we, nothing against them other than the fact we don't think they'll actually help and they'll put professors in a situation where they're afraid to talk. And there's been five or six studies of trigger warnings now, no evidence at all that they help, some evidence that they harm. And that doesn't even take into consideration the position that it puts professors in. So that, you know, that, that, that I think we've been proven, um, correct in the research. Um, and so why was it so different? We think that the the major thing that changed was this was the first generation who grew up 
um, with social media in their pocket since they were pretty small and, and all the numbers line up. I think something that we didn't include in the book uh, was that the um, social media boom among young people also precipitated the anti-bullying, um, and I'm going to call it this, moral panic in 2010. And, um, and, I'm, and not that it, it's a, it was a moral panic in the sense that it was like something must be done, even though it, to, a de- to a degree, you know, there certainly was bullying going on. It was particularly strange, though. My, my book of the month two months ago was Emily Bazelon's Sticks and Stones, which is about uh, uh, the, the bullying um, uh, uh, the bullying concern explosion. Uh, she wrote it in 2012 or 2013. Um, and it was, there were a lot of high profile, uh, suicides and it actually, she goes deeper into that and, and makes the point that a lot of these actually, you know, it was more complicated than it sounded. One of the biggest ones was actually a, um, uh, t- Tyler Clementi at Rutgers, who was a, who was in college and his roommate, you know, s- spied on him with a web camera, yeah. uh, with him and a same sex, um, h- a hookup. And then, like, embarrassed him about it, and and Tyler, and Tyler Clementi killed himself, and that horrifying scenario. Same time, not child on child, and also something that was flatly illegal in the state of of um, of New Jersey as well. That spying on somebody, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but there was a sense that something had to be done, and I think the reason why it felt so immediate was because bullying. Uh, and kids don't the idea that kids needed to always be as cruel as they were when we were kids is you now I, I, I think particularly towards LGBT kids. I think that it was about time that we had an anti-bullying movement. But you have to be careful in how you do it. Mm. Um, and I think that the laws that got passed in 2010 led to a lot of and the, basically every um, state in the country, you know, uh, at some point has adopted anti-bullying laws. But they got broader and broader and broader. And it was Izzy Kalman um, who really pointed out that in our in, in coddling the American mind, we talk about it as if there it, we were teaching a generation three terrible ideas, which we call the three great untruths. And those are um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Uh, of course, a play on reversing Nietzsche. Um, always trust your feelings, which of course sounds nice, but is just utterly terrible advice. I mean, like <laughs> most of growing up is like don't always listen to your feelings. Um, and, uh, and the third one, which might, which the next book that I'm working on called canceling the American minds really going to focus on is life is a battle between good people and evil people. Mm. And meanwhile, for most of my life, it felt like we were getting more sophisticated about like the idea that like everybody has some, some ugliness and beauty in them. Um, and it's just a question of how much and when, you know? Um, but I think that those, uh, those bad ideas, I and mean, this isn't in coddling, uh, but I think that those bad ideas were particularly um, uh, uh, um, <laughs> emphasized, I guess, uh, taught to the uh, the students who were in school in 2011, 2012. And that's one of the reasons why when they hit campuses, there was this real uh, – it wasn't just that they, they were, like, scared of free speech. It was that they thought that it was immoral. Um, and, and that's where you get the real sort of zeal for, for protection. We called it in the original article, we called it vindictive protectiveness. This idea that, um, I'm, I'm standing up for the little guy and therefore I, I can do uh, whatever I want to do in the name of protecting the little guy is okay. Free speech be damned. Um, and while that's a noble sentiment, um, it also is what everybody thinks when they're a censor, that essentially like they're doing something that's for the greater good. And that's very common. So I think that some, like some of the ways we, uh, we taught this sort of moralistic way, 
of, of addressing bullying. But what made it even worse was it also turned out it was a really effective way to win arguments without winning arguments and, and like without actually convincing people on social media. So I, I, I jokingly refer to this as the selfish meme theory that essentially like it's this uh, uh, cancel culture propagates because it is really successful at helping you defeat your opponent in debate, even though you haven't convinced them, even though you haven't made persuasive arguments, but you have figured out a way to what we now call get them canceled or at least scared of being canceled. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because, you know, the social media revolution, I think the spirit of it initially was to unleash freedom of speech and to allow all people to be able to communicate with one another and be weirdos. And to be weird and to be unique, and what seems to be true, and I, I, I want to. Oh, get your, by the way, I say that with with, with a, a very pro weirdo. <laughs> that's part of living in a free society. Not, I, that, I am too. For me, that's a compliment. It's not dismissive. <laughs> I, I totally get it. I totally understand. But what seems to be the result of so many of these social media revolutions, where you know everyone is spending a portion of their day on these platforms, is that what it's really seemingly done is enforced a form of serious censorship and obedience to some degree yeah how do you how do you respond to that what what do you think has happened with social media that is causing people you were just talking about this about the the propensity for dunking on people and canceling people that there's some sort of virtue in getting someone's reputation ruined without winning a good faith argument what what happened here? What what did social media do, and what what has it resulted in related to the, to this you know effect? I, I think it's a bit of a feedback loop, you know, that essentially um, I, I think that people were being taught these kind of moralistic ideas from 2010 on. It also turned out they're really great for you know winning arguments. Um, and uh, I, I think I, I would like to study what was going on in Tumblr because people keep on bringing up Tumblr as being sort of like the like the um, uh, the, in, the incubator of a lot of a lot of these ideas. But I think that when it was reinforced um, on in K through twelve, and then it was reinforced on campus with things like bias related incident programs and speech codes, um, and that you really uh, and and then it was rewarded in the sense that you know I can get this person fired now. I I, I can I can make this. Um, this poor, you know, person um, in, in my class, I can make their life hell. And that's stuff that, you know, have been, has been happening in K through 12 forever, but it was also called bullying. Um, so in some ways, I think socially smart bullies <laughs> figured out ways to game the system and, and still, you know, win, win in these status games, they competed against each other. And there was nobody, t- nobody saying that this is wrong. Somehow, like in K through 12, since it seemed to be good of heart, and it was about, um, standing up for the oppressed, it was not just um, saying like, "Hold on, so slow your horses." It was actually seen as, as as a positive good. So I think when you know a behavior that gets rewarded gets repeated. And and mm-hmm. and I want to be clear here: um, it's possible to think that someone got canceled and deserved it. I, 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 my definition of cancel culture is pretty straightforward. It's it's that um, it, and it's minus historic. It's the uptick in. Uh, uh, after 20, uh, 2014 and after of people um, getting like losing their jobs, being expelled or otherwise uh, k- kicked out of society for things that would be uh, protected under the First Amendment um, at, if you were a public employee 20 years ago. To be like really like to be, I got called out a little bit on not being pre- precise enough and I kind of took for granted that I didn't have to actually go, go deep uh, on what I'm talking about. But basically like having an opinion when you're off the clock or um, having something that, that is about a matter of public concern when you're on the clock 
was generally considered stuff that you you, you shouldn't be fired for. Um, and man, it, it increased after 2014. I, and just to give you some stats here, when I started in 2001, it was already much worse for free speech on campus than I than I really understood. And and Stanford, you know, could be a pretty uptight place, and it was really easy to say the wrong thing in the in, in the late 90s um, uh, at a place like that. Um, and I saw students get in trouble a lot. We launched a lot of lawsuits. We saw some really ridiculous bad cases that I talk about in my book, Unlearning Liberty. But it was really unusual to see a professor fired and a tenured professor fired for what they said or what they taught. Uh, I, can't think of, I can't think of one. There were tenured professors fired uh, during those first 12 years, but it was generally for something like academic misconduct, you know, like something they'd actually done that, that they legitimately could be fired for. And then in 2014, I started seeing a lot more professors getting fired, even tenured ones. Um, so now, we, since that is when we saw the uptick and we, our, our research, we're still updating it. But, you know, from 2000, and, and this includes the 9-11 cases, to, to 2015, um, you know, you, you, you're, you're talking about um, a relatively small number of professors getting fired um, or, or, or being targeted for being fired. And now we're up to something like 780 examples of professors being targeted. About 60% uh, of those re uh, result in them being punished or censored in some way. About, um, you know, a fifth of them involve being fired or, or suspended, like really serious punishments. And about 40, and this is a big number, by the way, yeah. um, professors uh, who are tenured being fired. And you will occasionally have, like, I did, I, I was on the Dr. Phil show three times last week, which is weird. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I felt bad in some ways because he actually seems like I, I crack jokes sometimes about Dr. Phil. And meanwhile, I did the show with him. I'm like, oh, actually, you, you, you actually seem kind of like a lovely man. So I, I, I feel bad now. But there was, I, I was put up against this dude who was Really, this, me talking about this made him really mad. It's like that's nothing. That's that, that's nobody. That 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 to seven hundred. Well, what is that? There are millions of professors. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there are not millions of professors. Um, <laughs> it, you, there are hundreds of thousands of professors. Um, depending on how you count it, there might be around three hundred thousand. There was one that said one hundred fifteen thousand, but I think that's full professors or something like that. Um, so it's not millions, first of all. Um, and about 80% of students who go to four-year colleges attend about 600 schools, and the top 100 schools, you know, are disproportionately influential on, on, on the whole country, and the top 10 are wildly um, uh, and, and, uh, more influential. And so, and the cancellation attempts are really concentrated in those top 10 schools and those top 100 schools. So, so the places, um, and it might just be an artifact of the fact that, you know, some of the, the lesser known schools, the less wealthy schools don't have the kind of student media to let us know about cancellation attempts there. Um, but it's, it, the uptick has been nuts. So in one, uh, so I think we saw like 38 attempts to get professors fired in, uh, uh, 2015, and then it was like 130 in like 2020, um, with a much higher rate of of, of professors getting um, uh, getting fired. And this is one thing that's driving me about a couple culture war, though. And I always point out at this point when someone's really being like dismissive of this, it's like, well, you should understand this: that the, a, a, a surprising number of these actually come from the right, and actually the right has some successes. It, it has some, you know, had some like scalps on the wall of professors who they got fired, usually for saying something um, uh, what they consider <laughs> politically incorrect from that direction on Twitter or, or on Facebook. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the numbers are really, we, we couldn't 
find a period of mass censorship of professors in American history that really matched up. When we looked at McCarthyism from 47 to 57, um, we found about 100 to 130 was was a generally accepted number. We're not even totally sure like where that 100 came from, and we're, we're going to be double checking that. But still, like that, and by, and I want to be really clear: 100, and, uh, 100 to 130 professors being fired during a 10-year period for speech is really bad. It's really bad for academic freedom. But to have a situation where you're talking about larger numbers of professors getting fired and suspended um, during a time where there isn't a national security scare like there was in the 1950s, there isn't a war, um, uh, and people are still saying this isn't even happening. Like, so at this point, if someone's telling you that cancel culture isn't happening, I don't, th- I don't really think you need to hear anything more they have to say on this because it, it's, it's been. Um, when it comes to authority, when it comes to data, when it comes to qualitative examples, when it comes to it, it, it's so clear that this is this is happening and it's serious. And I always make this point. They're going to be studying this in 50 years. They're probably going to be studying it in 100 years, just like the same way we study the Sedition Act in, in 1798. What you know, which, by the way, um, up until recently, we thought were involved involved about 15 prosecutions. Um, still really bad, um, but 15. Um, and and uh, the latest research indicates it might have been closer to 50. Still really bad, but we're, we're dealing with much larger numbers and certainly much larger percentages. And we're not uh, afraid that um, of war with France that will end the country uh, in, in the cradle. Yeah. You, you used this phrase earlier in the conversation that it is the radical idea, right? That it, it's so counter. The eternally radical to, idea. The eternally radical idea that it, it's so counter to human nature but arguably is one of the most important innovations in our in our history as a species and you just said this that it isn't unique to the left although i have thought just in reading about so many of these examples and why there isn't more of an outrage is that at least the the cases that i'm mostly familiar with and i don't know if it's the majority of cases do seem to be the left dunking on right-wing professors who have views that they find abhorrent and because so much of the media is sympathetic to left you know causes on the left there's less of an outrage than i think there would be if the inverse were true but that being said oh, i love do i do want to go ahead i, I do want to just just correct one thing um a lot of the cases where the left is, you know, getting someone fired, getting a professor fired, it's also a professor on the left. Um, but usually the distinction is that the professor is um, liberal the same way I think of myself as a liberal, which is like pro-free speech, like li- liberal of, of 20 years ago, um, whereas it's the sort of um, more social justice oriented left that, that gets them. And the reason why it's also the case is because, frankly, in a lot of schools, there just aren't that many conservative professors to begin with. So right. it, it, a, a lot of lefty professors are being targeted from their left, sometimes also from their right, usually for what they say on social media. Um, but, uh, but 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 when it comes the, but the students are much more likely to be successful in getting professors fired and and the and the students overwhelmingly come from the left yeah i think this is what you were kind of getting at when you were making the the comment that you know while there are more than hundred thousand professors and you know hundreds of them arguably are getting fired it's really where that the the motivation to fire these professors is coming from these elite influential schools from which the real cultural leaders of the country come from when they take over at you know, media organizations, at newspapers, at consulting firms, you know, the, the movers and the shakers of the country. And they take a lot of that 
that spirit potentially with them to wherever they end up working for their career. And that, that, you know, downstream of the zeitgeist of the universities where they may have gone uh, is how they penetrate the culture in general and create more of an atmosphere. But I, I'd, love, I'd love for you to talk about what the differences seem to be on the left and the right in terms of the, the issues that really seem to piss them off to a point mm. where they they get irate and begin to call for censorship of people that they that they disagree with do, are, do there tend to be just a few that consistently cause the left and the right to get so worked up that they actually begin to call for people's ouster well um certainly the uh one of the biggest trends has been professors um uh talking about epithets in class um and you know t- uh, 10 years ago like the idea that there was a distinction between um obviously you can be fired if you, you know, start calling students epithets in class because that's unprofessional um and and rate and potentially could, could get uh combined with other action could rise the level of racial harassment um but it was accepted that you know we're adults and there are cases that actually involve um racial epithets and that quoting you know supreme court cases accurately or co- for that matter co- quoting james baldwin accurately or quoting um nwa, NWA accurately uh, co- mm-hmm. quoting hip hop accurately wasn't the same thing as using it it was just considered like in, in this context we should be able to understand that this is a word i think we're we're now we've now seen like 60 or 70 cases of this um uh and those include ones that that fire hasn't taken public because professors are, are afraid to uh, even say that they got in trouble for this uh so like that's one thing that's been a, a major trend and it started you know um with a professor at the new school who was critical of the fact that they called a book about um james baldwin the great james baldwin not my negro um and that's not actually what james baldwin had said and, and she was like it takes a lot of temerity to uh, to rewrite baldwin because baldwin's you know off the charts writer mm. um so that's a that's a trend but in terms of stuff that can get you in trouble i mean my goodness like the um there's a case at st john's that i think a lot about um that i think i'm going to be including a lot in canceling of the american mind but this is a professor who the way the story was reported was he was suspended because he told students to defend slavery um and in, in a history class and when you get to see the actual breakdown of what happened he was teaching this really fascinating class on how the need for silver in china led to um this huge silver market in europe which had ramifications for what people did in uh for horrible things that the spanish did in south america but fascinating history like, like uh, um uh, horrifying at the same time and I got just, you know, we have the whole slideshow, you know, which we can show people. And the question, which which he didn't answer, um, he put it to the class, was, was the Columbian exchange? What, what was the European, what were the Europeans discovering uh, North and South America? I mean, like they were discovering as far as they were concerned um, and, uh, you know, colonizing and, and all the things that led to, was it in, ultimately historically worth it? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very nuanced question, and it got reported as he was demanding that people defend slavery, and um, and you know he, he was he, he was terminated, um, and it, it just kind of shows that that at, at least at certain points in the last couple of years, um, there was no kind of logical way to defend yourself. That essentially, like the emotions were kind of like so hot, and that seemed to be all that mattered. It was this was particularly intense, by the way, in 2020, when I had never seen. 
a year as bad as 2020 for for for, um, for free speech on campus. Yeah. Or off campus, for that matter. I mean, like the idea that people, everyone from Barry, I mean, the fact that Glenn Greenwald uh, and Matty Iglesias left um, publications that they founded because they were saying that they were too intolerant. And and this, and, or 150 people overwhelmingly on the left signed the Harper's letter. And still, you've got Michael Hobbs claiming this thing isn't happening at all. It's like, because you don't want it to be, ha- to be happening because you're not being intellectually honest. Yeah, yeah. I wanted, you know, what came to mind to me during this conversation so many times is, you know, if you is like an 18 year old student who's showing up on campus who doesn't know any better and really does believe, you know, to steel man the argument from this young person that is feeling deeply offended by some person who's coming on campus or some some something that a professor said and feels outraged right i mean you just talked about yeah. one of the three untruths being trust your feelings at all times Fe- and they feel like they are doing the right thing or at least they feel that impulse yeah. to go after that professor and they you know are beginning to consider doing that and they have friends that are also getting worked up into into a frenzy i'd love for you to you know take that thought experiment right if these kids were in your office and they're coming to mm-hmm. you with this kind of spirit and this kind of outrage and and they're young and they've been protected and they're also addicted to social media and they feel like they have to comply and obey with a lot of the you know virtue signaling that that they see gets a lot of you know retweets and and likes on social media what do you say to them you know to to have a spirit of good faith towards them and recognizing that these aren't people that are inherently evil they they may be misguided um, but they're young and they may not know any better. How do you how do you talk to them? What are the things that you think are important to highlight to them to get them to maybe start to think about this a little bit differently? I mean, like if, if I was an administrator and they came into my office, I would definitely, you know, there'd be things I would say. But at the same time, I, I think it's kind of too late by that point, which is one of the reasons why when FIRE talks about, you know, trying to reform your alma maters and demanding that your, you know, your university president take steps in the right direction, you know, we, we recommend five things. Uh, first, you know, drop your speech codes, um, which we've been very successful in decreasing the number of speech codes in the country. Um, uh, stand by your professors early and often. Um, a president that comes out and says, I'm not punishing this professor or student, they usually, that, that's often the end of it. Like it, it's, it nips it in the bud. Um, adopt something like the Chicago statement, um, poll your, your, your faculty and students to figure out where the problems are. But most importantly, teach freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry from day one. Make it part of orientation, make it taught by professors please, not, not, not administrators, like pe- people who actually, you know, understand the deep theory behind uh, uh, freedom of uh, inquiry. And it should be taught on day one, and it should be re-explained over and over again. Because um, what, you know, Jonathan Rauch calls liberal science, you know, it, it's a sophisticated idea. It's that our intuitions are wrong all the time. Um, that we, uh, that, that one of the great, you know, um, innovations in human history was taking seriously the possibility you might be, you might be wrong. Um, it, he wrote a great book called, uh, you know, Constitution of, uh, of Knowledge that essentially yeah. um, I, I really like this idea in Yuval Harari's book, too, of calling 
the enlightenment, the discovery of ignorance, because, you know, enlightenment makes it sound like, oh, we all became so clever. We, you know, we did to a degree, but we, only because we realized, wow, actually, when you start testing this stuff, well, everything, you know, all of our folk wisdom turned out to be completely way off and all of our guesses were were, were wrong. So you got to start um, uh, instilling that epistemic humility, the, 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 the um, humility in how much you can know um, and how much you don't know uh, really early on. And that should be talked about on day one. Um, and the idea that, you know how you've heard that this person is evil, you know, um, this person, r- go and listen, go go to the th- go to the talk. And this is the most radical thing, because sometimes people are kind of like, go and protest it then. I'm like, honestly, my preference would be like, go sit in the audience and listen and try to see where the person's coming from. And if, you, and if you're still, you know, angry, you know, ask some tough questions, but really do try to understand where they're coming from because um the people who are currently being treated as you know beyond the pale um uh, uh, so many of them are not nearly like not, not the monsters that, that that people are being told. I mean, I'm sure there are people on, on campus who hate my guts and hate John Height's guts, um, who think we're saying something uh, because they know the title of, of of our book, which I'm not a fan of the title, Calling the American Mind, as I've said, until I'm blue in the face. I want to call it disempowered because I felt like we're doing this, um, you know, negative thing to kids, uh, telling them they're less powerful than they are. But for example, I mean, like I was sufficiently indoctrinated myself. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, come, I come from the left. I worked at the ACLU. And what, much to my shame, when I was in law school, if you told me an author was conservative, I would be like, okay, well, and I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't think it exactly like this, but, oh, I guess I don't have to read that, you know, or, or uh, like I didn't have to think about it anymore. And I remember, you know, like the gateway drug for a lot of people is reading Thomas Sowell. Um, you know, the um, uh, great scholar from the Hoover Institution at Stanford, African-American genius. And as soon as you start reading it, you're like, wait a second. He's what he's doing is he's comparing the U.S. to other countries in the world, <laughs> you know, and, and trying to learn from uh, the way um, uh, issues in between tension between uh, powerful majorities or powerful minorities and or not powerful. And, and it, it, it's this global perspective to try to figure out what the solutions are and where the problems come from. And and it, it's exactly kind of the way I was raised that, that basically try to think of, yeah, America is special in a lot of different ways. And it truly is. But it also has problems that are the same um, the world over that we can look for ways of, of solving it and look for trends. And, and I was like, wow, so so he's considered radioactive? <laughs> like, yeah. like, really? Um, so I, I do think that getting kids to, 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 tr- to listen before they decide that they hate something, or for goodness sakes, if you're going to go to a um, a protest of someone who wrote who, who wrote a book. Read the book um, in advance, and I, I, I think that um, Mark Lilla writes a lot about how the left got too enamored with protest um, when the less sexy things like democratic mobilization and getting people persuasion and voting is actually, in some way, in many ways, more important. So, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 FIRE has an orientation program, by the way, that, that we can give to if any listeners are interested in, in um, uh, getting your alma mater to do one of these free speech and academic freedom orientations. We have a, a module we can send them. Some schools have used it as inspiration to figure out like what uh, what what they want to do individually. But to my knowledge, I think only like uh, I think Hopkins has one. Um, uh, uh, Purdue and University of Chicago have this kind of part of orientation, but they, it's a, just a scandal as far as I'm concerned that not every single school in the country does that difficult, you know, mental work of being like, 
um, you know, uh, take seriously the possibility you might be wrong, hear people out, try to steal man where they're coming from should be just taken for granted on, on campus. Yeah. I just two days ago talked to Pano Canellos, um, who is the new president of the University of Austin. And I mean, they're a, a huge reason for the creation of this startup university is really to push back against a lot of the tendencies that we've talked about during this conversation on on campus in general. And, you know, I I feel the same way. You know, it really was, and this is part, partly why I do the work that I do, getting exposed to highly intelligent, genius-level conservatives in long-form conversation online that moderated a lot of my own leftist tendencies, which I think is is fairly common and to me is one of the great hopes of modern technology and in in turning the temperature down a little bit and people's yeah. certainty that they have and i you know i i i think this is something that that pano talked about this past week which is the monoculture on university oh, campuses you know the the Huge problem. the 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 fact that it seems like you go to these schools and they are this may be overstating it a little bit, but almost like brainwashing factories for people to come out all thinking the same way. Mm. And I, I want to get your take on you know, what it means to be free, what it means to live in a free society and a free civilization. You know, you already mentioned the word ignorance, which I think any honest person who is self-aware and is attempting to find truth realizes that you will always be enormously ignorant compared to whatever brief amount of knowledge that you have and that admitting that is the first signal of yep. in many ways intelligence but how do you think about what a a healthy society you know teaches its its young people in terms of what the goal of an education really is you know if it's not to have everybody come out spouting the same thing yeah. is it you know the really embracing of the questions themselves is it the the fun of being able to change your mind while maintaining your you know civility and your your humanity i i'd love to you know think hear what your you know north star is there in terms of how you think about what the point of an education is you know the the phrase that i keep coming back to is that reasonable people can disagree mm -hmm. and that that has been totally lost in so much of 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 the U.S., it's. I'd love to just get your thoughts on that sure. in general. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I did wonder is, is there is um, definitely repeated research um, claiming to show, and I think it's somewhat debatable that that um, schools aren't really indoctrinating and they're not really brainwashing. Um, but then you also look at the numbers that indicate that, for example, when you look at a place like Harvard, something like eighty percent of the students, you know, already self-identified as being lefties in the first place. Um, so I think that uh, some of this is the power of homophily, that when you have very homogenous um, teachers, when you have very even more homogenous uh, administrators in terms of like the, the, uh, Sam Abrams really did a great job of pointing out that the, the, they're even more monolithically uh, to the left, and then also a, a student culture um, that, that it tends to uh, send um, group polarization spiraling out. So it doesn't have to be someone changing your mind, but it can be in the atmosphere that you come out that you become, you know, many standard <laughs> standard deviations uh, more to the left than, than you came out. When it comes to what, I mean, I definitely have my own opinion on what I think um, education should feel like. Um, 
And for me, I, I like to do a lot of my job walking around and I love Washington DC where I live. And I remember, um, walking home, listening to some lectures on, uh, you know, some, some esoteric topic and just having that sense that you were this tiny little boat in an infinite ocean and you're never going to know it all, but a, a life of just trying to learn what little you can in the short time you have on this earth is noble, but also it's beautiful and it's mm -hmm. satisfying and it, and, and it erodes any, any silly sense of certainty you might have. And I think that that kind of, you know, radical open-mindedness was, was the thing that got people excited about uh, different ideas of, of, of freedom of speech, of ideas of, of the enlightenment, that excitement for you can't know everything, but be, be humble in that. And instead, unfortunately, what I think we're doing in campuses, um, I think there is a sense and in K through 12 that, um, it's okay to teach people things that uh, will promote uh, promote them to do something, um, even if it's not a very scholarly idea to do. So I think that I had this. I had a conversation with one of my best friends um, uh, shortly after law school, and, and um, he criticized me. He said, "It's like, well, you're always thinking about like what like what's factually accurate, but I'm trying to figure out what will motivate people." And I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> because um, if you don't, uh, Alice Drecker has some great stuff about this in Galileo's Middle Finger, where she says, like, if you care about, like, let's say you really care about progressive causes, guess what you need? Science. Um, you, you need you, you need research. You need ways to figure out what will actually help, because all the passion in the world um, uh, could, could actually end up making things much, much worse if you don't actually understand the problem. So you have to, at some point, come in with the epistemic humility to go, well, what is the problem? And here, here's my, and, and I should probably take seriously the possibility that none of us really know um, with any, uh, with any amount of, without the adequate amount of, 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 um, of clarity. Hmm. You know, I know we're getting a little bit short on time now, and there are just a couple other things that I want to um, cover with you. And, you know, yesterday when I was doing, um, some additional research for this conversation, I was looking at, at John Height's Twitter feed and he, he had a graph, I think from his forthcoming book that he put up about, you know, the, the growth in depression rates, oh, which yeah. is something I know that he focuses on. No, me too though. Uh, I mean, and, like that, that, that's well how, that's how we became friends. Yeah. And that this was an insane statistic, but it's something like t roughly a quarter of girls between the age of 12 and 17 have major depression yeah. at this point. And this is a book, this is a theme you talk about in your book, which is anti-fragility, mm -hmm. right? The, the idea that sometimes getting knocked down is the best thing for you. You know, you and John talk about the immune system as a, as a decent analogy there for the fact that you need to be tested to grow. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I gave you an opportunity to to talk about that, about how important it is as a just as a person. Yeah. To that, you know, this is something I heard him say once in an interview with the two of you that, you know, if you expose your kids to peanuts, they're much less likely to to get a peanut allergy. Yeah. And I think you can apply that to many things. So I, I wanted to give you, a, you know, a chance to speak to that from your perspective of the importance of you know really what it is is growth to me and get yeah. you know a, an extreme form of resiliency in in the human animal how do you think about that in general um you know i mean like i said that was what brought, what, what made me and john friends um was uh when i was struggling with having own struggles with anxiety and depression um which i had for my whole life and i mm -hmm. got so bad that i was hospitalized which i talk about um you know, as a danger to myself, which I talk about in in coddling the American mind at a level of you know a of um, 
graphicness that I never actually shared with anybody, including my wife. Um, I just felt like I had to be real about it. And the theory was um, uh, that uh, administrators, that people on campus seem to be telling people um, to catastrophize, to overgeneralize, um, to engage in in good good versus evil, negative filtering, all this kind of stuff, um, the, and which are the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. And I remember thinking when I was recover in recovery in two thousand eight, that's like, well, thank goodness students aren't listening; they're rolling their eyes at what camp what what administrators are saying, just like um, young people always have. But in twenty fourteen, when we saw that major shift, it really did. You could hear it in the arguments that essentially it was presumed that they were fragile. It was assumed that their friends were fragile, that they could know that they'd be permanently harmed by hearing things or being exposed to people um, that would hurt them forever, um, that they'd never recover. So this is this, this is cognitive distortions, as they're called, on steroids. This is overgeneralizing. This is mind reading. This is fortune telling. All these kind of things, um, but they've been taught it. And I and it, what what is so cynical about it is I feel like they're being taught this stuff for that very reason of thinking that well, if you believe these these um, uh, uh, great untruths, you, you'll be more likely to go you know advocate and fight for various political causes. But meanwhile, it's like it's incredibly damaging to people to be, to believe this stuff. And so like the in uh, in twenty fourteen. When we first started talking about this, um, you know, w- w- we were making the argument that, you know, you should th- – and I was, I was making the argument to John that not only is this going to be a disaster for free speech and academic freedom, this is going to be a disaster for mental health. Yeah. But we hadn't seen the numbers yet um, because the, the data wasn't really out for what was happening in 2014, of course, in 2014. And wow, um, when the data came out after the after the, ar- the original article that we wrote in 2015, it was terrifying and it's just gotten worse. Um, and uh, meanwhile, it's, it, I, I, Coddling has been this crazy successful book. I, you know, it's nearly 600,000 copies sold. Um, the, uh, and meanwhile, and while I appreciate the fact that people are reading it, I wish they'd listen to what we're trying to say here because it's, it's clear that we're not figuring out ways to teach, you know, younger people the habits of, 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 of not anxious and depressed people. Um, and I think that the, the mental health crisis is something that, Unfortunately, K through 12 has helped create social media has helped create. Um, and when it comes to like the idea of anti-fragility, you know, that, that that's like a starting place in, you, you know, that, that essentially you, you should start as a parent with the idea that actually I know that if my kids aren't challenged enough and don't, uh, don't have a chance to challenge themselves, um, and are encouraged to actually, you know, um, uh, to try difficult things, they're, they're going to be much more frightened of the world th- than people who, you know, develop a sense of what's called self-efficacy. Um, but we're so far away from that right now. Like it, it seems like, like anti-fragility is something that parents and K through 12 teachers and higher ed need to understand. Um, and the idea that you're doing anyone a favor by whispering into their ears, by the way, you're actually very fragile and you can't handle any of this stuff on your own is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that because yeah, to me, I, I agree with everything you, that you just said. And I, I think that you know, it is such an, an insidious message to be giving to young people that is seductive because when the world does get difficult, which it, it will be, kind of, uh, th- this is how you open the book. You know, it's it's a line, I'll probably butcher it roughly, but it, it's, the idea is you, you want to pre- prepare the child for the road and not the road for the child. And, you know, I... And maybe this is a good place to close because to me, you're you're kind of the perfect person to be 
championing this could be a component of so much of what we're talking about is creating fearful people, <laughs> you know, people who are um, almost inevitably going to be increasingly anxious and depressed for not confronting difficulty in their life. Um, it doesn't mean they have to, you know, agree necessarily with people that they're that are that's saying something that they find contrary to their you know their gut or their feelings or their their current ethical perspective on the world but um there is something about overcoming that and facing it head on that's you know linked probably to courage and bravery mm -hmm. and it, maybe if we could just close on this you know you you alluded to this and i i have so much respect for you for coming forward with you know your own difficulties with anxiety and depression and i know i've heard you talk about this in interviews that one of the three untruths is don't believe everything that you feel basically mm -hmm. and that when you're in an anxious and, de and depressed state it is like you're in an altered state where your mind is telling you things and it's very seductive to believe them that are causing you great suffering mm -hmm. um and and I have to imagine to some degree this might be partly why you're so committed to this that it's also like a a bit of a spiritual calling to you know champion um, taking life on and dealing with discomfort to some degree and and maybe we could just close with you if you have any additional comments on this sure. about the link between a healthy person and a person that's able to deal with you know, criticism of their own views or feedback that might hurt a little bit. You know, you, you've talked about your own suffering in, in detail, and I have to imagine you've walked away from that realizing that is not the way forward. You know, yeah. being, being taken, taken in by that is the highway to hell um, in your own life. And that I think is certainly applicable to a culture and a society too. So I don't know. I just wanted to, to to maybe close on that and have any you know additional thoughts you may have about that particular comment um, and and ideas that were just stated right there. Yeah, sure. I mean, and again, it's one of those problems that if you don't get to it early, because it, it's not like I could have. Uh, I understood intellectually things like cognitive distortions um, uh, long before I was able to use it as a treatment, and and it takes a lot of work. Yeah. It takes a lot of work and a lot of, and you have to turn it into a habit and a yeah. practice. And it took months and months and months before it actually started to really kick in. But it changed my, you know, it saved my life. I, I, I think I, I, when those voices pop up in my head that, that are saying horrible negative things, they just don't sound that convincing anymore. Um, but that's a that's a long process, and unfortunately, I think it's perverse that that we've taught young people, you know, oh by the way, really listen to that voice, like re really follow that because that one's right is messed up. And I think it's one of the reasons why CBT isn't. Um, as effective uh, in some cases for for some of the some of the college students because I think that really they're being told that these are these are moralistic things you should, these are good things um, uh, a good form of self criticism when, when it's actually really really quite cruel so I, I I try to figure out how to do this with my own kids I have a, a four a four year old named Maxwell and a six year old named Benjamin. Mm. And you know like if, if Max is telling me that they're watching like a cartoon and there's a scary part. Um, and Max asked me to change it. Um, you know, I, I'm talking about cartoons here. I'm not talking about making, making watch <laughs> Halloween or something like that. Um, and I'm like, Max, listen, I'm going to sit down next to you, um, and we're going to we're going to watch this episode all the way to the end. Um, and I want you to be brave, and I'm going to sit right here next to you. 
And then we watch to the end and I say, so Max, was that as scary as you thought it was going to be? No. Every single time, no. And it's like, because the thing that grows in your head, yeah, the, the, the thing that you're afraid of is always a thousand times bigger, or at least usually much, much larger in, in your imagination if you if you won't face it, um, th- then it actually turns out to be to simply, you know, address it. And that's like, oh, actually, that wasn't really all that bad over and over again. And meanwhile, I think we the, the, the disservice we are doing to all of these, you know, brilliant, uh, hardworking, uh, you know, good hearted young people, it, it, it's something we're going to look back with a great deal of shame because of course you don't tell them that you can't really handle life on your own, that you are fragile and you'll be permanently damaged by words. Because that's a, because saying that people are, are inherently fragile is lying to them. And currently we think we're, and we, and we, and need, to, we need to understand that that's what we're doing. We're lying to them about what they're capable of. Um, and we're telling them that they are far less powerful, far uh, uh, capable of, of much less great things than they actually are, much fewer great things than they actually are. Yeah, I think that's an awesome place to close. Um, Greg, I, I know how busy you are, and um, I, I think I speak for many people in commending you and saying thank you for all the work that you've done over the years for this issue, this you know eternally radical idea that... Um, I think we really underappreciate how much it has shaped and given us so many benefits that we now take for granted. And, uh, you know, anyone who dedicates their time and energy to continuing to lift it up to the prominence and esteem um, and respect that it really deserves, I, I have a ton of respect for personally. So thank you so much for doing this, man. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Dan. I'm glad we got to do this. Likewise. <laughs> and, and now I got to go uh, work on an article. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.